Dearly beloved, we are gathered here together to do that. I don't even know what to call that. We just want to experience him. The one who loves us and gave himself for us. I don't even want to say anything. I'm just like, this is over, it's fine. Let's just call it a day. We'll beat the Pentecostals to Texas Roadhouse, all right? Let's just call it a day. Here's what we're going to do, though. Uh, I'm going to be a sort of Rand McNally for you. If you're under 30, that's like Google Maps. Uh, but I just want to tell you where we're going the next five weeks, where we're going next few years, and then where we're going today, but not in that order. So the next five weeks, we just wrapped up a series called Primary Colors. It was awesome. I mean, I thought it was awesome, but it was fun, super fun. And we're starting a five-week series where we're just talking about where are we going and what in the world are we doing? Who are we? What are we doing? What's our mission? What are we all about? What's going on? I'm confused. I have questions. Well, if that is you, you are in luck. We're also confused with questions. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we're, well, sort of. But that's where we're headed the next few weeks. We're just going to say, hey, who are we? Where are we going? All right? Then, after that, we're going to start a series when school starts on Philippians. Because does anybody know who Smokey the Bear is? Yes. Only you can prevent forest fires. Okay? And I think if you head out, I won't say their names, but... People in the back, if you head out to their house, there is a Smokey the Bear, and there's like a, you know, there's a meter, right, where he's standing there, and it tells you the fire danger. So if it's like, if it's blue, should be cool. If it's red, and you're smoking outside, you're a terrible person. So, you know, the meter. Joy operates in the same way. When, when joy is low, fire danger. Book of Philippians is all about how do we cultivate joy? How do we do that together? And look, we, we just as a church, we've been through a lot. As a, I don't know if you watch the news. That's a lot. We're going to be people of joy, whatever's happening around us. So that's the next five weeks or so from now. Right now, though, today, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to say we're not responsible for fruit. We're responsible for faithfulness. So when you hear me say, we're not responsible for fruit, we're responsible for faithfulness, that's your cue to beeline toward the door and beat Christian fellowship at Texas Roadhouse, all right? Like, this is, we're done. That's where the plane is landing. To, well, don't do that. There's announcements, and they're important. But, like, that's, that's where we're landing the plane today. But before we start, does anyone have any money I can borrow? That came out weird. Does anyone have, like, a bill, like a dollar, five dollars? Okay, all right. I see that hand. All right. Don't worry, I'll give it back. There's a few witnesses here who, who saw me take this. Oh, thank you, Melissa. All right. You know, in the first service, I got $100. <laughs> Won't tell you what she gave me, but... All right. I didn't hear that, but I'm sure it was nice. All right. Where were you on August 22nd, 2004? Yep, me too. I don't know. You know who will never forget where he was August 22nd, 2004? Matthew Emmons. The New Jersey native was an Olympian. And he was competing in the Olympics in a sharpshooting. He had been shooting his whole life. He was a pretty good shot. All right? He had one shot left. That's it. 
and it's gold. He just had to hit the little card, too. He didn't have to hit a bullseye. He just had to hit the card, and he was going to podium. So, you know, I don't know how they do it. This is what I imagine. Pating! Bullseye. Wow! Shot at wrong target costs rifleman gold. Look at that face. Yeah. Yeah, for, for Matthew. That stinks, all right? He hit a bullseye, but he done hit the wrong target. Now, it's really important that you hit the things you aim at. But what if you're aiming at the wrong target? Today, we're going to be looking at we're talking about mission. We're talking about what we do. We're talking about what we want to do over the next few years, right? And I just want to be clear, crystal clear out of the gate. We're going to try real hard to aim at the right target. All right? And let me just tell you what those two targets can be. All right? One, and this is just the air we breathe. Results. Right? Numbers. Are we moving up and to the right? That's a target. We can call the target fruit. Another target, though, is being a certain type of people. We can call that faithfulness. There are two targets before us. And look, we want to get stuff done. We're not just like, woohoo, who cares? Right? You know, we, we want to have godly ambition. But that's not the target that we're aiming at. We can't control how people respond. We can't control what happens. We want to aim at the target of being. And that's exactly what I think Jesus says in the graduation service he holds for his disciples. Last thing he says in Matthew's gospel before he disappears. I think he's inviting us into a way of being in the world. Not getting things done necessarily. Will things get done? Yeah. That's not the target we're aiming at, though. So, if you have a Bible, we're going to go to Matthew 28. Let me just warn you on the way there. Great American author James Baldwin once said this. Not everything faced can be changed. But nothing can be changed unless we face it. That's so good, I'll say it twice. Not everything we face can be changed, but nothing will change unless we face it. We're going to look at what's called historically the Great Commission. The word mission comes from Great Commission. And we're saying, hey, this is what we're doing, right? We're also going to talk about the room that all of us walked into. And it's not Compass Church, it's the Zeitgeist. Spirit of the age, whatever you want to call it. Just the times we live in. This cultural moment, you pick a label. We got to talk about that room we all walked into. Right? Because Jesus gave some very important instructions. And to quote the sociologist from Notre Dame, Christian Smith, something shifted. The zeitgeist has changed. And we just got to talk about that because we'll never really get at making disciples if we don't name the shift. So, 
If you have a Bible, please stand with me. We're going to read Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Something shifted. Then the 11 disciples, I thought there was 12, yeah, uh, went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. It's amazing. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, most definitely, you can take this to the bank. I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we live in a moment that wants results. We live in an age that asks, what are we producing? Father, I pray that this morning we would feel the invitation to be invited into a new way of being. That we would be people who are with our rabbi, who learn his teaching, who do what he does, and then go invite others into that way of being. Ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, The phrase, something shifted, comes from a talk that Christian Smith gave at Wheaton College uh, last year. It's incredible. Just Google Christian Smith, Wheaton College. You'll find it. A lot of what I'm about to say about this shift comes from his talk there. Now, Smith got that title, something shifted, from Lord of the Rings. I don't know her name, like the elf queen, Kate Blanchett. She's saying, like, something is different in the air. Things are not as they once were. Right? Something shifted. And we're going to just look at that for a little bit. And the danger, if we don't, is that the shift that took place means people are over here and we're over here. We're just not talking to each other. And we have to name that shift if we're going to be faithful to what Jesus invited us to do. And it may be overwhelming. Great. I want you to feel stuck for a hot minute. Okay? What we're going to talk about this shift, though, I just have to give like a little bit of a warning. If you're older, if you're older, this is all going to make sense, okay? If you're younger, you're going to be like, what is he talking about? All right? And that's because if you're older, like, so I'm a millennial. I'm trying to give us the nickname the second greatest generation, but it's not catching on. <laughs> so if you're older than me, you're going to be like, I get this. I lived through this. I totally have a context for what you're describing. If you're younger than me, you're like, I thought this was just the way things always were, right? No, 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 no. Something shifted, and that's what we got to name. And the very first thing we got to name is going to give you anxiety, okay? The very first thing we got to talk about that shifted in America, it starts with a P and ends with politics, okay? And it's politics, all right? Something happened in 1991 that shifted everything, okay? Two things happened. First was these surveys that got sent out every year. There was a dramatic rise in the nuns, in people who were were now labeled nuns. Now, I grew up in New Hampshire near a convent, and the road we learned to drive on was very windy and hilly, and I remember you'd come up the hill, and there would be nuns, 
standing in a line across this little road. And remember, you just close your eyes and hope you didn't just go to jail. Not those kind of nuns. N-O-N-E-S. Nuns. People who are no longer associated with any religious, they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. Nuns. In 1991, we saw a huge uptick in the nuns. So what? What, 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 what does that matter? What happened? Well, what happened, does anybody know what happened in 1991? Uh, politically, a very, actually, I don't know if I should ask that, I get a like, shout out, but a very monumental political event happened in 1991. The end of the Cold War. And the end of the Cold War shifted perspectives in America, shifted the zeitgeist dramatically. Because prior to the Cold War, and if you're young, like, you're like, oh, that's why this happens. But if you're older, you're like, oh, that shifted. All right? Prior to the Cold War, it was democracy versus communism. It was God-fearing Americans versus godless communists. Okay? That's, it was seen as being patriotic to worship God. Because the enemy are these godless communists. All right? This is some propaganda I mean, it's not propaganda if it's true. I mean, like, like they, they were godless communists, right? That was what was happening, right? And so some people will notice if you take out, oh my gosh, hang on. If you take out money and look on the back of it, it says what? Does anybody know? In God we trust. Some people say, well, the only reason we put that on there was to stamp out communism. And look, there's some truth to that, but it's an oversimplification. At this time, it was seen as your duty, thank you very much, it was seen as your duty as an American to worship God. Why? Because there's a threat to being American. And so it was seen as this duty. What happens in 1991? The end of the Cold War. Because in 1989, Ronald Reagan says, Mr. Gorbachev. All right. The 90s, everything changes in the 90s. What happens in the 90s? The enemy shifts. The enemy no longer are these godless communists. The enemies become religious fanatics, radical Islam. And our, this happened under the Clinton administration. They kind of had no idea this was going on. The 90s were all these bombings, and it really culminated on September 11th. And then George, a, George W. Bush, president at the time, did a really good job trying to communicate like, hey, our enemy are not Muslims. There's many good Muslim Americans. The enemy is radicalism. But what happened was a shift in the zeitgeist. It used to be, well, I'm an American, therefore I'm religious, and religion is positive. And then it shifts to where now you get words like radical, you get words like fundamentalist, not having the same connotations that they once did. Religion is now seen as scary. And so atheists, as Smith points out, atheists used to be these like kind of annoying buzzkills who were like, don't make me stay under God in the pledge. I'm an atheist. To like, there were four atheists, they're called the four atheist horsemen of the apocalypse. You may know them, like Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, uh, my hero, though I disagree with him, Christopher Hitchens, and Richard Dawkins. And they convinced many, like, hey, religion, bad, scary. Shift. Right? There's a shift. Something shifted to where America was seen as like, we have a positive view of religion. Now, all of a sudden, not so positive. A shift. Other things shifted. Millennials, the second greatest generation, have very low trust in institutions. 
Okay? So does anybody know what the least trusted institution in America is? Congress. Yes, I heard it. All right? Nobody trusts Congress. You know what the most trusted institution is, though? This is just kicks and giggles. The military. Isn't that weird? Right? But so no trusted institutions. Why? Because something shifted. With my father's generation, you could go work at GM, GM, and there was like a sort of social contract. I'm going to spend my life working for GM. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to take care of me. I'm going to be here for my whole career. And then you'll have this thing called a pension, and you'll take care of me after I'm gone. Bloop, gone are those days. This thing happened in like the 80s called neoliberalism and globalization and it basically was like, hey, like the market's going global and now if you're a graphic designer, you're not competing with graphic designers in Columbia, Missouri. You're competing with graphic designers everywhere. So like you'll hear like classes on how to build your brand, right? And it's all about like, I've got to make lots of money. So young college students, when it talks about like, hey, do I want to build a meaningful life philosophy or do I, want, I need to figure out how to be successful? Those two things on a graph switched. I need to figure out how to be successful because there's this amazing, immense pressure. You've got to hustle, hustle, hustle because somebody somewhere is going to out-hustle you. Couple that with people are spending less and less time with face-to-face -face interactions. Right? Remember the Flintstones? What did Fred sneak out to do at night? Play bowling. He would go have these face-to-face -face interactions with real flesh-and-blood people and he would go bowling. Now what do people sneak out to do? They look at their phones, right? And so COVID definitely super isolated us, but it was already something we were already headed toward. We were already headed toward isolation. So you've got this political thing happening where religion is viewed as odd. You've got this other thing happening where institutions, why would I belong to an institution? They're not going to take care of me. Is Google going to take care of me? No. I'm going to work for them for two years, then I'm out of here. And you're asking me to join a church. Why would I join a church? I'm going to move to Seattle in six months. Like what? That's happening. Now, are we anxious yet? Turn it up a little bit more. Sex, S-E-X. All right. There was a sexual revolution in like the 20s. Like my great-grandmother, gross. <laughs> there was another sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s, but not a ton changed. Now we're living through another sexual revolution, all right, where identity and sexuality is just, it, the, the, what that means has gone, is the doors have been kicked wide open. And so you have one generation looking at another generation, like, I don't get it, right? Take all that, and then you take the church's teaching on sexuality, which has not changed. It is one biologically born male marrying one biologically born female, one lifetime. That's it. And it's like, wait. And so you have a whole generation, again, if you're younger than me, this is just the air you breathe. You're like, wait, what? People think, what? Right? But that's just the air you breathe, and that's something that's been happening, a shift. So you've got now institutions, religion is weird, perhaps scary, why would I belong into an institution? And they teach things that could be labeled harmful. And then Jesus says this, go make disciples. I'll check on you in a few. It gets more complicated. Remember our friend Jim Baker? A few months ago we did this like PTL event with Jim Baker. Not my friend. I've never met him. I forgot. I have to be clear about that. I just read a book about him. All right? But in like the 80s, evangelicals and scandals kind of like were brushed aside. It's like, well, of course these televangelists... I'm going to take that picture down. Sorry. I'm like, why does everyone look sad? 
Now, of course, these televangelists are going to be scandalous. They're flying private jets. They're living, you know, lifestyles of the rich and the famous. Of course, there's going to be scandals. But that's the, the, the outliers. Fast forward, a guy called Ted Haggart. He was the head of the National Association of Evangelicals. A great organization. Love it. He's buying meth and having sex with male prostitutes. And you're like, whoa. Ravi Zacharias, like Jack the Ripper, real life, like crazy, evil person. The Southern Baptist Convention and the abuse that happened in that report that they just got, all of a sudden it's not out there. Oh my gosh. Couple all that together. And you're just like, hey, you want to come to church with me? <laughs> no? Not everything we face can be changed, but nothing will change unless we face it. And we have to own that when Jesus gave those parting words, go make disciples, and lo, I'm with you always, he's sending us into a very confusing room. And if our target is results, we're going to be very frustrated. We're going to be very confused. Something else that happened, though, within this movement of evangelicals, and I understand that word is so, there's a lot of baggage with that word. I'm not ready to give it up yet still means something around the world, and it still means something to a group of scholars that I kind of belong to, the National Association. I don't really belong to, I sort of, I'm like a charter member. I don't know what it's called. National Association for Evangelicals. It's great. Anyway, no, I, anyway whatever. Um, this movement happened where in the 20th century, there were fundamentalists who said, man, Western culture is going to hell in a handbasket. Take our basketball, get out of here. Then there were theological liberals who looked out and said, uh, people don't like us, let's change the, let's rearrange our doctrine. People love science, people don't raise from the dead, let's just, you know, yeah, Jesus spiritually rose. Let's change what we believe. And out of that came people, men and women, who said, whoa, whoa, time out. Let's not leave, let's not erase what we believe. There's another way to, let's engage. Let's think, let's, let's, let's love, let's head into these places and let's engage. Now, that movement got hijacked and twisted all around and all these other things, but that's the posture. All right? So when we talk about a church on mission, we just read the mission that we were given. Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's non-negotiable. Go do this. That's, we can't say, well, let's do some of that, right? Let's do the evangelism part where we just get people, just the baptizing people in the name. Let's just do that part because we're good at that. Or, oh, actually, let's just do the growth part, teaching them to obey. We're really way better at that and better equipped for that. And people out there are crazy. We have to do the whole thing. All right? And so at Compass Church, a year ago, I have no idea what sense of time, a group of us got together in a room, the senior leadership team, and we said, hey, let's figure out how to put this phrase in language that we can all understand. So this is what we say. That what are we doing? What's our mission? 
Compass Church exists to create space for people to discover Jesus and find their place in his story. We exist. What are we doing? What are we doing? We are existing to create space for people to discover Jesus. Not, please, no, not force people to discover Jesus, not power them into discovering Jesus, to create space, grace, love, hospitality. For people to discover Jesus, that evangelism. We want people to meet Jesus and find their place in his story. Growth. We want people to grow. That's how we're expressing Jesus' parting words. So it gets complicated because we walked into a room where we didn't make the rules. I didn't make the rules. This is the room we walked into. We're just trying to name what we see. All right? I did not do any of this. You did not do any of this. It just is. You know, we can pine for the good old days, but the older I get, I'm like, I don't know if there really were any good old days. You know, I think they're all kind of like this. We can pine for the good old days. We can learn from the past and move forward. What are we trying to do? Well, it gets complicated because the room is complicated, but here's another thing. The great spiritual uh, guru, Dallas Willard, once said this. There is no one size map for growth. There's no, what works for me is going to work for you. What helps Craig go, grow is going to help Amy grow. None of that. There's no one size fits all. So what do we have? We have a room that we're walking into that's very confusing, and there's no one size fits all spirituality. All right, let's just call it a day. This is too hard. No. We do believe we can chart a path forward. Is it going to be perfect? No. But we, it's too important to do nothing. People are separated from the life-giving power of the triune God. And there are some bumps in the road. And to go, ooh, I'm out. Those are big bumps. Is to miss the point entirely. And thank goodness someone didn't do that before we got here. There have always been challenges and someone answered those challenges. So we want to talk about how are we answering that challenge to discipleship? How are we approaching growth together? So we're going to map that out in these next five weeks. Now, as we do that, it's really important that we look at Jesus' great commission. This is kind of like our marching orders. We want to really understand that. Look with me again at his great commission. Matthew 28. If you look with me, Matthew 28, verse 19. Therefore, go make disciples. All right, what are we supposed to do? Make disciples. Got it. Great. My dad was a mechanic. I worked for him. He'd be like, all right, Craig, I got fired, and it was awkward. Didn't know I got fired. The paycheck stopped coming. But he'd be like, Dad, all right, Craig, go change those lug nuts. I'm like, got it. Hey, what's a lug nut? All right, same way. Jesus, go make disciples. Got it. Hey, what's a disciple? Have you ever just stopped to think about that? Like, Jesus like, go make disciples. Like, uh-huh, got it. I'll do that. What are you doing? I'm just, I'm just, I got to look busy, right? I got to get stuff done. 
What are we supposed to be doing? When Jesus gave this great commission, what in the world was he expecting us to do? Was he expecting, okay, just figure out how to get as many people in a room, save them, dunk them, count them, report it to the denomination? Like, well, what are, what, what are we trying to do here? When Jesus invites us to make disciples, he's actually inviting us into this really beautiful thing. He's, he's telling us to invite people not into doing something, but into a way of being. Discipleship is all about being. Now, doing flows from being, but we are inviting people primarily to be something in the world. What's a disciple? A disciple is a learner, a pupil, or an apprentice. All right? In the first century, everything was built around discipleship. All right? So if you wanted to be a rabbi... You couldn't just, like, the, the rabbi, or I'll just go get a certificate. Boom, I'm a rabbi. You had to find someone and go be their disciple. And there were four steps to being a disciple. There are four things that a disciple did. All right, write this down. These are four things disciples do. Thing number one, spend time with your rabbi. So if you want to be a disciple of a rabbi, you've got to spend time with that rabbi. Like, face-to-face -face interactions, being with that rabbi. Thing number two, you got to learn that rabbi's teaching. So if you want to be a disciple of a rabbi, first you got to find a rabbi, be with a rabbi, spend time with your rabbi. Then you got to learn your rabbi's teaching. Third thing you do, you got to do what your rabbi did. You ever wonder why in the story of the Gospels, Peter gets out and walks on the water? He's following step three. He said, I'm with my rabbi. I'm learning my rabbi's teaching. Okay, rabbi's walking on water. Here goes. And fourth, what's the last step? We just read it. Go invite other people into this way of being. Go make other disciples. Those are the four things disciples do. So when you think about discipleship and you think, oh, a disciple is a learner, a pupil, and apprentice, don't think this. It's like, great, now you got to read a book. You got to sit in class. We do read books. I mean, we do sit in classes, but that's not primarily what this is about. See, the challenge for some of us, especially if we've been around church for a long time, when we hear Jesus say, go make disciples, we think of disciple as, a, as like a verb, right? Someone's, someone's going to disciple me. Someone's going to show up and disciple me. Well, that's just not biblical, okay? And you know, because it also sets up for really unrealistic expectations. You're like, someone is going to take an interest in me, they're going to take me out for coffee, and they're going to just very gently and lovingly have all the wisdom that I particularly need, and they're going to map out a, a, a way for the rest of my life. I never had that. I've never had that. So discipleship doesn't work. It's not discipleship. Disciple, the word, is used hundreds of times in the New Testament. It's used 262 times as a noun and only once as a verb. Here, in this passage, go make disciples. Primarily, a disciple is something we are, not something that we do. A dis you, you either are a disciple or you're not a disciple. You're either learning or you're not. And look, just newsflash, just so we get this out of the way early, I'm not your rabbi, all right? I am a fellow disciple, all right? We are in class together. I'm learning. I do not have it all figured out. I'm figuring it out as I go, all right? We're learning together. We are in the school of Jesus together. We are fellow students, classmates. Hopefully class of like 2100, like we're going to live forever, all right? 
We're learning together, but our identity, this invitation, when Jesus says, go make disciples, he's not saying, get busy, get busy, get busy. He's saying, invite people into this way of being. It's not about results. It's about being with our rabbi, learning his teaching, doing what our rabbi did, and then just inviting other people into that way of life. See, the American church has done a fantastic job, a fantastic job of teaching Jesus as Lord and Savior. He is my Lord and Savior. And that gives me peace like a river, all right, deep in my bones, Lord, Savior. We have not done as great of a job about teaching about Jesus as teacher and friend. We've done a really good job teaching Jesus as Lord and Savior. Where are you going to go when you die? Get your heaven card punched, whatever that means. We've not done a great job of teaching Jesus. He's a teacher and friend. Jesus came. Jeremiah just talked about the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do we know how to live in the kingdom of heaven? Well, the king of heaven came and showed us. And we're, it's our job to be with him, learn his teachings, do what he did. Right? The, the gospels are called biography. They're spiritual biographies. Not just like, well, isn't that the neatest? Jesus prayed. Huh. No, but it's like, oh, wow, he's teaching me how to be human. He spent time with, he spent time with the Father. He learned dependence and trust. Holy cow, great. Teacher and friend. The call to discipleship sometimes doesn't make any sense if we're just thinking like, hey, just pray this prayer and you get to go to heaven when you die. Well, what about all this like shifting in between? Just kind of keep your head down. It'll be over soon. It'll all just poof and be gone. Huh? Trust us. You'll be fine in a few hundred years. Right? No. It's about teaching us how to live in the here and now. You trust Jesus for heaven, for eternity, but do you trust him with your tomorrow? It's an invitation to trust and so the way that we're expressing that is that we say, hey, we want to invite, we want to make disciples, we want to invite other people in this way of being. And so we are creating space for people to discover Jesus and find their place in his story. And that's really intentional language. That didn't just come out of thin air. Read with me again what Jesus says in verse 18. Then Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, that means any authority you have in your workplace, any authority you have in the boards that you sit on, any authority you have at home, any authority that you have in this community, in our city, is yours and has been given to you on loan. It's his, all authority has been given to me and he is lending you power. And what's the therefore that comes out of that? I got all the power. Therefore, go scare people into the kingdom. Therefore, manipulate and stronghold. Therefore, save Western civilization, whatever that means, by fighting back. Therefore, make disciples. Invite people into this way of being. We are not trying to scare people. We're not trying to strong arm people. We are people who abide and we invite others into that same abiding. And, and we can't guarantee results. 
You know, uh, churches talk a lot about demographics, and I've heard conversations around here about demographics. They go something like this. Who's Compass trying to reach? Right? I hear Compass doesn't like old people, and they're trying to push all the old people out. I hear Compass is trying to reach young people. Well, you know, look, I don't know where you heard that, because I didn't say it, and that's not how we think. All right? We're not trying to reach old people. We're not trying to reach young people. We don't think like that. Just All right? Here's who we're trying to reach. Spiritually curious people who are frustrated with the shift. Spiritually curious people who say, I thought the world had answers, and those answers are letting me down. Those are people we're trying to reach. Our neighbors. Those are the people that we want to say, hey, here's a teacher and a friend who said he's with you always. We're not trying to win no culture war. What we're trying to do? We're trying to abide with our rabbi. We're trying to learn his teachings. We're trying to do what he did. He forgave his enemies. He blessed those who cursed him. We're trying to do that. Right? And then we're just trying to invite other people into this way of being. And we say that we're trying to create space. Create space. We're not trying to, we're not, we're, we're trying to be hospitable. We're trying to say, like, hey, look, the very original audience that met with Jesus, who, who he invited up to that mountain, look what it says in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. This is not a place where you have to get your mask super shiny and, and you have to sh- present yourself as like, I'm an all-together disciple. I've been learning for years. What are you struggling with? Not me. No, like the founders of our faith, when they were getting their commission, it says some doubted. There's space for you to discover Jesus and find your place in his story. Your place is not my place. Your story is not my story. You got to figure out what that looks like for you. We're just creating the space. And so there's four spaces that we say, hey, as a church, we're going to focus our energy around these four spaces. It's what's happening right now in, in our gathering. What's happening right now is discipleship. There's an ancient and beautiful art form that I love. I love this art form. It's called a sermon. And I've given my life to try to nerd out about it and figure out about it. And what it's beautiful. It's what the poets and prophets did in the Old Testament. It's what Paul and Jesus and the apostles did. And it's, it's discipleship. It's saying, hey, hey, fellow apprentices of Jesus, let's learn to follow him together. That's this gathering. Beautiful things happen when we sing together, when we're excited to be together. That's part of what disciples do. We're saying the gathering, in-person gatherings are part of the discipleship process. Yes, we know there are folks at home who have crazy immune systems and should not go outside. And we will find ways for you to have in-person gatherings that are deeply meaningful and discipling you. But we believe an essential component is discipling. Let me tell you a story. And I really hope I don't get in trouble for this story because I didn't ask permission. But it's not that bad of a story. One of you invited a friend here. Great. And that friend came and they did not have a church background. Okay? And so they come in, they come in here, and right out there, they see a room that's called a cry room. And they're like, what's that? It's a cry room. What is it? Oh, kids go in there to cry. Why? Well, they're crying during the service. What are you people doing in here? And it's like, oh. Oh, that's on us. That's on me, right? I've been in churches my whole life. I've never, it's never even occurred to me. Like, that's weird. Like, it's also kind of shaming. Like, go to the cry room, right? 
And that's nobody's fault. That's nobody's fault. But look, if we really do want to create space, we got to realize like some things we might be doing unintentionally create obstacles. So we're going to get a committee together, pray about it, and in 10 years change the name of the cry room. <laughs> oh, sick burn. This gathering matters. And I'm not ready to give up on the sermon. I think it still works. I think it's still beautiful. I've been transformed by sermons. Sermons have changed my life. I'm getting emotional talking about sermons because they're amazing. They really can do things. And the question isn't like, well, I didn't like what that preacher did with the tags. You know, I, I didn't really like what they did. It's like, yo, we were there. That's cool. Like, we, you know, when Ezekiel, right, Ezekiel chapter 4. This has nothing to do with my notes, but Ezekiel chapter 4. Have you ever seen Ezekiel bread at the grocery store? Ezekiel bread is disgusting. It was all these weird ingredients, and he was supposed to bake it over human feces because he was lying on his side for 328 days. Like, why? Because he was preaching a sermon to Israel saying, exile's coming, and it's not going to be good. We're not giving up on Sunday morning gatherings. It's an essential part of who we are and what we do. It's a great way to cultivate joy. Good night, do we need joy? But that's not where we stop. We're also going to connect. We believe that we are transformed through relationships. It's not about what you know. It's about who you love. And this is a great place to be loved on. I have been loved on tremendously by so many people in this room. This is a transformative place to be loved on. And nobody talked to me when I came in. I'm like, I'm sorry. I know that's super awkward. I hate that. We're working to fix that. But also just like introduce yourself to your new best friend. Like we want to do connection. We want to cultivate spiritual friendships. We want to be disciples who get together with other disciples and fan the flames of our faith. Connection is a huge part of what we do. So on August 28th, we're having our Connect Picnic. I think the name we landed on was like Connectinic, I think. <laughs> We're going to have our Connect picnic. Mark your calendars. Write down the Netflix shows you're going to be missing. You can watch them later. And get to know each other. All right? I'm not part of a connection group. This is just a time for us to get together. Have face-to-face -face interactions with each other. The Connect picnic. Serve. That's the next step. Ask not what Compass Church can do for you. Get up and clean toilets. All right? We're a family. What does it mean to belong? It's like, oh, if not me, who? Hey, I'm going to help serve coffee. I want to take care of each other. I want to I've been loved on by this community. I want to love on back. We are disciples of a rabbi who washed his disciples' feet. We're going to wash each other's feet. Not literally. That's gross. We're going to do it metaphorically. We're going to serve each other. There's men and women who wake up early to make sure you have coffee. There's people who put themselves outside their comfort zone to make sure you're welcomed here on Sunday morning. There are people who are praying for you in this service. It's amazing because people serve. We want to serve each other. Lastly, though, we want to break ministry out of these four walls. We want to bless our neighbors. We want to say, hey, my neighbors are not connected to Jesus in any meaningful way. I want to go. I want to listen to them. I want to eat together. I want to share, I want to share my story. I want to serve them. We're going to go bless our neighbors. And so that's the pathway. That's what we're focusing our energy on these four spaces. The gathering, the connection, serving, and blessing. 
That's, that's what we're saying. Hey, you know what? There's no one size spirituality fits all, but we can create these spaces where this happens. We can invite people into them and we can watch God work. This is going to be, we, we're excited about it. Because you know what? There's, there's two things we can do with these challenges. We can either learn to trust or we can learn to manipulate. We can either learn to trust to say, look, God, I, I can't create any fruit. Right? I, I can water the soil. I can make sure that sunlight gets in here, but I can't make this fruit grow. So I've got to trust you. I can create the space and I can trust. Or we can figure out how to twist the numbers. Oh, look, let's add the Burmese church to our numbers and then we'll tell people our numbers are huge. We're not going to manipulate because we're not responsible for the fruit. When we make the fruit our target, Ooh, that's when things get crazy. How did it land? Did they like it? Was it okay? Were people listening? Oh, there's a low. Were people no, 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 no. We're not responsible for the fruit. We're not. We're just responsible for something else. And so, in about five weeks, one of the things we we're going to do is we're just going to have a baptism. Remember, that's one of the things Jesus said. He said, hey, go into the world, make disciples, baptizing them. Oh, my goodness. We're already on mission. How fantastic is that? Look, you didn't even know it. You're like, I just came in here, but look, we're already off to the races. Woo! All right? So, in about five weeks' time, we're going to have a baptism saying, hey, if you're someone who's never trusted Christ, we'd love to talk with you about what that means. We'd love to tell you about how a Christian is someone who says, Jesus has done for me what I could never do for myself. And, and then we think the first step in that is saying publicly, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm getting baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to really look carefully at that verse, though, because this is a really cool verse, and it just proves that being a Bible nerd is awesome. Uh, verse 19, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Notice it does not say in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It says in the name. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality that you have been immersed into the life of the Trinity. The triune God says, come on in. Welcome. Be in relationship with us. And so we, we take you and we put you under water as a picture of like, just like you're under this water, you are immersed in the love of the triune God. Whew, that's who we are. And because we're these people, we can go. We can go make disciples. Because look with me at verse 20. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, does anyone, that part where it says and surely. Does anyone have a different word other than surely? Lo, remember, behold. Anything else? The Greek word there is edu. Can you guys say that? Edu, edu. Okay, great. There's no great translation for edu, but it means something like this. Hey! Hey, reader! This is a big deal! All right? So it's like, it's not like behold, right? What does behold mean? Like, behold, but what? Like, no one talks like that. It's like, hey, reader, I need your attention for a second. You're headed into this crazy room. All right? People aren't going to understand you. They're going to start rumors about you. All right? It's not, it may not even go well. But check this out. I'm with you. And it literally says, every day 
You here tomorrow? Yes. How about Thursday? Thursdays are kind of a low. Here. Even to when time wraps up. We're headed into a room where something shifted. But we're not alone. We're not alone. I don't have answers for the shift. I know I'm like, oh, this is overwhelming. This is crazy. What do we do? I don't know. But here's what I know. We're not alone. We don't have to be alone. We have each other, and he's with us every day until the end. Have you heard the one about Clarence Jordan? Do you know Dr. Clarence Jordan? Dr. Clarence Jordan went to my alma mater, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's him on the left. Dr. Clarence Jordan, uh, originally from the great state of Georgia, uh, he went and studied agriculture, ag studies, and he uh, had a PhD in that, and then decided he wanted to go to seminary, so he moved to Louisville and got a PhD in New Testament. Two PhDs. While he was in seminary, he decided he wanted to be a missionary. He took this verse seriously. And he wanted to be a missionary to his native Georgia. He was deeply troubled by the racial segregation that was happening at that time. And he took the, the, the verse seriously. It says, go make disciples of all nations. He took that very seriously. So he headed back to his native Georgia. And the stories about this guy are absolutely legendary. Uh, Millard Fuller, who went on to found Habitat for Humanity, said this guy didn't read the Bible in English. He'd read the New Testament in Greek, and then he also understood agriculture, and he was just, the, it was, he was super godly, crazy humble, crazy adventurous. It, it, he said, I've never met anyone who did what their rabbi did, just like Clarence Jordan. So Clarence Jordan moved, out, moved back to his homeland as a missionary in, in rural Georgia, and he built what was called Koinonia Farms. And Koinonia Farms was going to be an integrated farming system where African Americans and white people would live and work together. Because he said, hey, this new way to be human changes everything. We're going to go back to a very dark place and be a missionary. Dallas Lee, who was a reporter, would visit, uh, he would visit and he would say he was terrified at the things people were saying. He would leave shaken by some of the things that he heard while he was visiting Koinonia Farms. He's like, no one was like threatening me. It was just a really, you could feel the darkness. On the first day that they were there and they set up Koinonia Farms, African-American men came in and a couple of white guys came in. They're great, you can live here. We'll, we'll start working. And I really understand ag science, so we'll, we'll make a really cool farm. And so they, they came there and then later that night, there's a knock on the door. It's the clan. And this clan member says this. I don't know who you are, but we don't let the sun set on people who do things like what you're doing. Clarence Jordan puts a big smile on his face and says, oh my goodness, my whole life I've waited to meet people who have power over the sun. This is fantastic. We will be watching with great anticipata anticipation this evening's sunset. I don't know about you, but it's not smart to make fun of people who are dumber than you. It's also not fun it's smart to make fun of people who are dumber than you that have guns. All right? So he, he says that. The dude leaves. He's all upset. And what does Clarence say? Sure enough, the sun set and the sun rose the next morning. Now, that doesn't mean everything went well. 
Cornelia Farms was a victim to violence. The clan would regularly terrorize people who lived on the farm, yelling terrible things at anybody associated with the farm. There were cross burnings, intimidation, fear, and then one day they burned it all down. And the next day a reporter shows up to talk to Clarence Jordan. I don't know if you know this, but like white hoods aren't a very good disguise. So Clarence recognized him as one of the clan members who had been there the night before. And the reporter says, well, I guess you'll be leaving now, huh? And Clarence said, oh, I'm really sorry. I think you have me mistaken for someone else. We're not focused on fruit. We're focused on faithfulness. Father, help us to aim at the right target. God, we want to be with you. We want to abide in you. We want to learn your teaching. We want to do what you did. And we want to just invite others into this way of being. God, we can't guarantee any fruit. We have no idea where this is going. While we don't know where we're going, we do know who's with us. So Father, I pray that you'd give us the courage of people who trust your presence. Thank you for your spirit. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.